Welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Before I get into today's topic, I just want to note that I'm releasing this episode on a Sunday, and I'm tentatively planning to do episodes going forward on Sundays. I have two reasons for this. One is I like Sunday as a kind of high altitude day for often on this topic on the show we're talking about kind of high altitude thinking about life so i think sunday's a nice day to listen to that kind of thing particularly sunday after, afternoon or evening and the other related reason is that uh because i think of sunday that way and i often spend my sundays that way i like the idea of recording this show on sundays or at least recording most of these shows on, on Sundays, and then that enables me to schedule my Friday in a way where I'm doing more of the kind of work that I like to do on Friday. So we will see how that works, but that's why this is coming out on a Sunday. Okay, into today's topic. Today's topic is one I'm sure you're not expecting. It has to do with the new coronavirus that we are dealing with as a virus and also as policy and economic implications uh, of the policies. But today, I'm actually doing an episode on the science uh, of it. And as you might expect, I have a guest, since I'm not at all an expert on the science of it. And so today's topic is an organism-based understanding of the new coronavirus. And I'm going to emphasize the idea of an, organi- an organism-based understanding, because this is a type of understanding that I think is very important to have uh, about many kinds of biological phenomena And certainly this coronavirus that's become such a big part of our lives. And it's a kind of understanding that I think is lacking in the popular media, but is valuable to have. So to introduce you to what I mean by an organism-based understanding and to introduce you to my guest, I want to tell you a story, or the story rather, of how I came to be interested in this idea of having an organism-based understanding of things. So a couple of years ago, my sister, uh, Catherine Epstein, who is an MD with an extensive background in scientific research, uh, approached me with a project. She was working on a book on sexually transmitted infections, STIs, often, which is often referred to as STDs. Uh, and it was specifically uh, a guide for women uh, to the science of STIs and also what kinds of actions they could take. So she asked, could I help her edit it? And I thought, all right, well, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. And I ended up having two takeaways from getting to work with her on this project. Now, one that I may do a future episode on, and it'll almost certainly be with Catherine if I do it. I think this is a really crucial issue, not really for today, but still crucial, is that the issue of STIs is way more important than I thought, especially for women. So one thing I've learned from Catherine is that because of women's biology, as well as certain cultural dynamics, Women are at much higher risk of sexually transmitted infections, uh, for sexually transmitted infections than men are. And that really makes me think you know, it's really important for women in particular to learn about how to protect themselves, to have a real understanding of them. And I think it's also important for the culture at large to make some changes based on the kind of asymmetry of risk to women. But that is a topic for another day. The second takeaway I've had from working with Catherine is that I noticed that she had a very good way of give of explaining STIs. And particularly, she had what I would call an organism-based understanding of an explanation of STIs 
including viruses. And what she would do, and you'll see this more in detail as we go through, or hear this more in detail, I should say, she would explain the goal of the virus and the strategies of, of the virus almost as if the virus was a person. And I found that that kind of understanding of the goal and the strategies made it a lot easier to understand uh, under what circumstances the virus is dangerous and also what kinds of counter strategies can we take. And it, it made it more real what to do and why to do it versus just having it as this mystical, like, oh, there's, an, there's a disease and we do something about it. And I have really no idea how any of it works. And so as this novel coronavirus, I'll sometimes call it novel coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, I think is the most technical name for it. As it it was clear, this is a very big deal. I thought it'd be valuable uh, to help have Catherine help me get an organism-based understanding of viruses in general, and then this virus in particular. And as I was talking to her, I thought, okay, listeners of Human Flourishing Project would also benefit. So it's pioneering it's not the type of thing the show usually does, but I do think this will be valuable, so I brought her on. So without further ado, Catherine Epstein, welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. So let's start off with this idea of an organism-based understanding. Why do you think an organism-based understanding of infections is so important? So when I was in medical school, I actually really struggled to learn about infectious diseases it was one of my toughest subjects because it required more memorization than any other subject. And I noticed that when we memorize things as medical students, we work really hard to cram a lot of information into our brains that we then immediately forget. Um, but one day my interest was piqued when my microbiology professor told my class something that really interested me, which was that women suffer far more from sexually transmitted infections than men do both because we are more vulnerable to getting infected and we are more likely to suffer from negative consequences. So I became very curious about why that was, and I wondered if there was anything that women could do in order to have sex as safely as men do. As I began learning about different sexually transmitted infections, I began thinking about them less as these horrible diseases and more as unique organisms with their own goals and their own strengths and weaknesses. I began to be able to picture each of these sexually transmitted infections, what it would do if it got inside my body, and what I could do to fight back against it. And I found that thinking about sexually transmitted infections in this way made it really easy for me to remember a lot of things about them, including how they could hurt me and how I could protect myself against them. So I think that there are many aspects of medicine that are incredibly interesting and helpful for people to know about. But this information is rarely presented in a way that is understandable or memorable. And my goal with my book is to help people understand sexually transmitted infections in a way that they can remember so it can help them to be safer in the choices that they make. On this podcast, I'm, I will be trying to give you a more organism-based understanding of the novel coronavirus. I think this understanding could also help you make sense of all these random facts about the novel coronavirus that you are likely hearing and reading about. For example, you may have heard that it targets older people and people with chronic medical conditions. You may have heard that it can often be asymptomatic. You may have heard that in some cases it can cause abdominal pain instead of respiratory symptoms. Yeah. I, I just to second what you're talking about earlier, I, yeah, I noticed that just with diseases, it's, it's has this, the way the way they're they're really not explained, so it just ends up being this just 
this just malicious force in the universe. And it's just this thing and like you get it and you don't really understand uh, how it works. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea of you just, you understand it in terms of what it is as an organism, what it's it's trying to do. And I know that when you're thinking about an infectious disease, you're thinking about specifically, you've told me its goal. And then, and then you've taught me that all infectious diseases use three types of strategies. So could you tell me about those? Yeah. So whenever I think about infectious disease, um, I always like to remind myself of its goal. And so an infectious disease has the same goal as any living thing. And that is to make as many copies of itself as possible. So I always remind myself of that, like novel coronavirus is trying to make as many copies of itself as possible. That's just, that's just what it's doing. And the harm it's causing is really collateral damage. Um, and in order to really understand how the novel coronavirus is accomplishing its goal, I focus on, th- on three specific questions. So I say, how does it grow? How does it hide? And how does it seek? And if I can answer these three questions, then I know I will have a pretty complete understanding of an infection, in this case, the novel coronavirus. And I will also, based on these answers, have some pretty good ideas about what specific counter strategies I can use to protect myself. So just to, um, I just want to get a little more elaboration. So grow, hide, and seek. So does that grow inside your body? Yep. So how does it grow? What you know, Once it's gotten inside your body, how does it grow? How does it hide from you? Um, and maybe the people around you and how does it seek, how does it move from one person to another? Got it. And uh, we'll we'll be getting in a lot more detail on that one with uh, this specific virus. Okay. So since the, I like asking naive questions because I think that often we use terminology, we don't know what it means. So this coronavirus is a virus. So before getting to the coronavirus, I want to ask, what is a virus and how do viral infections uh, work? Because sometimes we hear about bacteria bacteria and viruses and viral infections and bacteria infections. So can you make sense of that? Yeah. And I don't think that's a naive question. I think that's a great question. I think it's always really helpful to get a more concrete idea of how these infections are working. So a virus is a tiny organism that is really just a package of genetic material. So you may have heard of DNA or RNA before. And DNA and RNA are the instructions that all living things use to build themselves. So we're human beings, um, we're made up of cells, and our DNA contains instructions to make all the different kinds of cells in our bodies, from skin cells to muscle cells to eyelashes. Um, So just going back to what a cell is, a cell is the smallest unit of ourselves that can be said to be alive on its own. If you break a cell down into smaller parts, it is no longer capable of living. So I like to think of a cell as a water balloon, and I think that um, image captures that it has an outer covering and a bunch of stuff that stays inside and it will lose its character if you burst it, it will die. So cells basically build themselves out of nothing and in order to do this they need two major components. They need instructions which are DNA and RNA and they need building materials which are proteins. So if you're thinking about building a house the DNA and the RNA are like a blueprint and the proteins are the bricks and lumber and you need both of these things to you know, build the house properly. I, I like that. By the way, I, like the cell thing I find really helpful because I never, I mean, I'm sure I, I learned this in biology class, but it's, it's very, I find it very clarifying to say like, oh yeah, this is this, this is like the smallest, almost self-contained unit or that can, that can be alive on its own. So sorry, interrupt you, but yeah, I like, 
I like that way of thinking about it. Thank you. So each cell in your body is made up of DNA and proteins. Um, But viruses are different. Viruses are basically only the instructions with no building blocks. So I like to think of them as an envelope full of instructions or an envelope full of DNA or RNA. They don't have any of their own building materials. So what they do is inject their instructions or their DNA or RNA into your cells and have your cells do their dirty work, which is to make more copies of themselves. So they can't survive on their own. Correct. Yeah. So they can sort of, you know, exist out in in the world, you know, to some extent, but they are not considered to be actively living on their own. Got it. And I think what's important about understanding this is it makes viruses much harder for your body to get rid of than bacteria are. Um, So viruses are harder for your immune system to fight, and they're harder for us to develop medications to beat them. Um, And so let me explain a little bit why this is. In general, the major way that your immune system fights a virus or a bacterium is to differentiate your own cells from foreign cells and kill the cells that are foreign because they might kill us. So bacterial cells are, um, they're completely different from human cells. So they're relatively easy to target. Um, Bacterial cells, for example, have cell walls. um, So we can give medications like penicillin and penicillin is an antibiotic that destroys cell walls and causes bacteria to explode. So boom, if you take penicillin, you've easily cured an infection. And you know, so is that is that like a labeled water balloon in effect? Like it has a different label on the outside so y- your immune system can see it? Yeah. I mean it's it's both the I think both the label is important and then also like what the water balloon is made of. It's made out of something completely different that's not in our body. So you can basically you know, poison that material without causing damage to, to our body. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the label and then actually what it's made out of are, are both important. Um, viruses, unlike bacteria are harder to kill because they're hard, they're hiding inside of our cells and they're using the building blocks of our own cells to do things. So with viruses, there's no cell wall. There's no, other unique molecule to target. And it's much more difficult for our immune system to distinguish between our own cells and our own cells when they're infected with a virus. So, so that sounds smart on the part of virus. I mean, not exactly designed. That sounds like a good strategy in itself yeah, to be a it's, virus. It's it's brilliant. Um, it It's a really good strategy and it, and it works really well. Um, our immune system has ways to fight back, but I think in general, it's helpful to realize sort of what what a challenge it is for both our immune system and for our scientists who are developing drugs to fight viruses. It's, it's much harder. So when a virus infects one of our cells, it basically takes over. That cell stops working for us and it starts working for the virus. So I like to think of this as a car being hijacked. Um, Once a cell starts working for the virus, it starts making more copies of the virus. So going back to the water balloon analogy, I, like to picture an infected cell as a water balloon that is gradually being filled up with copies of virus once it's infected. And when it gets full enough, it will burst and shower all the surrounding cells with virus so the virus can infect many more new cells. And that's how a virus can spread throughout your body. If a virus makes enough copies of itself and you know showers, showers them around, it will, um, the virus will eventually enter your bloodstream and then it can spread all over your body and infect all the infectable cells it comes in contact with. 
So I will talk in a minute about what makes a cell infectable with a particular virus. But the number of copies of virus in the blood is often referred to as the viral load, which is a term you may have heard before. And it, the viral load is a, often a measure of how sick you are. So the higher the viral load, both the more sick you are and also the more likely you are to transmit the infection to another person. So yeah, so just to summarize, viruses are harder to differentiate um, from human cells. And because of that, it's harder for our own immune system to get rid of them. And it's hard for us to find medications that can fight against them. Okay. Another, that, so that, thanks for that. That's very clarifying. Another naive type question is, what is our immune system and what are the basics of, of how it works? Yeah. So that's another great question. So our immune system is what protects us from dying rapidly from all the bacteria, viruses, and fun fungi that are that we're constantly being bombarded with, but we're we're unaware of this this you know fight going on. So we know that our immune system is doing this job for us even without our realizing it, because patients who have weakened immune systems, either because they have HIV, because they're getting chemotherapy, or because they're on medications that actively suppress their immune system. These patients with weakened immune systems get infections that healthy people never get. So I always think of the immune system as an incredibly sophisticated army of cells that systematically destroys almost any threat that enters your body. Um, I think the immune system has come up in a lot of discussions of the novel coronavirus. So you may have heard that one way the novel coronavirus can kill you is to trigger an overwhelming immune response, which includes a something called a cytokine storm. I think it's important to realize that when we get sick, there are actually two reasons why we may experience symptoms. So one is the actual infection itself, and the other is our immune response to it. So for example, when we get a cold, a lot of the symptoms we experience that make us very uncomfortable, like sneezing, coughing, watery eyes, these are all usually symptoms of your immune system trying to get rid, trying to get that virus out of your body. So Anytime you get sick, you know, the the symptoms you have are usually some combination of, you know, the virus or bacteria actively destroying cells in your body and of your immune system producing symptoms in an attempt to fight back. So your immune system can cause a lot of symptoms that make you uncomfortable and it can cause a lot of damage. Um, however, it's always important to remember that your immune system is almost always helping you survive. I think we can hear about you know, the cytokine storm or um, like acute respiratory distress syndrome. And, you know, those are immune responses that can be harmful. I think it's important to remember that your immune system is, is almost always helping you out. So I had an immunology professor once who gave a helpful analogy of this. So imagine that you're sitting in your home and someone lights your sofa on fire. And this fire is too big to put out with a fire extinguisher. So you call the fire department. And they come with their hoses and trucks and spray water over everything to put out the fire. So in this analogy, the fire is the infection and the fire trucks and hoses and water are your immune response. The fire trucks and hoses can cause a huge amount of damage, but ultimately you're better off having the water damage than you would be if you had just let the fire burn down your house. So there are many cases where severe infections trigger a massive immune response that can actually kill you. And so people often think that if you could just dampen the immune response by giving immune suppressing medications, for example, then you can improve outcomes. 
And there are some very specific cases where this has been shown to help, but in general, it it hasn't helped. Um, And that's because if you suppress the immune system, the virus will have a better chance of overwhelming your immune responses and killing you. So when I think of the immune system, I think about how perfectly calibrated it is to do its job of killing bacteria and viruses without causing too much damage to your own cells in the process. And any perturbation of the immune system can have negative consequences. So when your immune system is too active and you get an autoimmune disease, so lupus, for example, your immune system literally starts attacking your own cells, and that can be really, really bad. But if your immune system is too weak, for example, in people with HIV that leads to AIDS, um, or in people who take immune-suppressing drugs, they can be very vulnerable to getting these sort of exotic infections that most of us never have to worry about. So aside from preventing new infections from killing you, another really important function of our immune system is to give us immunity to infections that we've encountered before. So as soon as a new virus, like the novel coronavirus, enters your body, it starts an arms race between the virus and your immune system. If the virus wins, you die. If your immune system wins, it will be able to produce a highly specific attack against the virus and clear it from your body. And your immune system does this by producing antibodies that are highly specific to a certain infection. And these antibodies will help your immune system clear the virus from your body, and then they will remain in your blood afterwards to prevent reinfection. So in general, after an infection with a virus that your immune system is able to overcome, you should be immune from that virus. Um, this is not always the case, but it's generally what we expect. So that's that's just I don't know. Just it's crazy to me that our bodies can actually do that because you just think about how much intelligence we try to spend, like figuring out how to fight this stuff through some external intervention, and then it's just yeah, the body it just can come up with its own successful war plan against kind of anything that enters it. Yeah, I mean, our immune systems are are doing a lot for us every single day without us realizing it. And I think it, it is really amazing to think about like what a good job our immune systems do overall. Um, certainly, you know, we come up with vaccines and medications that that really help, you know, that certainly save tons of lives. But our immune system is really doing so much for us. Um, I agree. It is amazing. So just going back to this idea of immunity. Um, I think because it's something, it's certainly a question that comes up, like if you've gotten the novel coronavirus, are you immune from reinfection? And if you are immune, how long will you be immune for? So the amount of time that you will be immune from a reinfection in general may vary. So over time, your body may stop producing these antibodies if you're not re-exposed to the infection. So for example, um, I mean, Side note, this is actually how vaccines work. So when we are vaccinated, you know, we're exposed to a virus um, or we're exposed to something that our body can produce an immune response to. And, you know, if that's successful, then we will be left with antibodies floating around in our blood that will prevent us from getting the infection. So if you get a vaccine for months, um, later on, you can get antibody titers drawn, which show you like the number of antibodies per, you know, cubic milliliter of your blood. And if they're at a certain level, then you'll be protected. And if they're below that level, then you'll be vulnerable to getting the disease. What was Um, the word antibodies? What is 
tighter tight tighter that just means like level like the number of copies got it in your blood um so that's one reason why you might not have lasting immunity if the you know if the number of antibodies in your blood declines over time um another factor that will determine whether you remain immune to something that you've been infected with is whether the virus or the bacterium has a high mutation rate so for example Um, both chlamydia and gonorrhea, which are sexually transmitted infections, they, they have a high mutation rate, they can basically change what they look like very dramatically. Um, And what that means is that they can reinfect you almost immediately after you've been infected. Um, And so viruses with high mutation rates may change enough over time that they can reinfect you. Um, those are sort of general things to keep in mind about reinfection. I don't think we really know, you know, how immunity to the novel coronavirus works at this point. Got it. All right. Well, let's talk about the novel coronavirus, AKA uh, SARS-CoV-2. So this is obviously a new virus that we've all been trying to understand uh, very quickly. And just, I'm curious in terms of your process, how do you go, about understanding a virus like this? Because most of us just read accounts in the media, and I think that often doesn't uh, work too well. So I'm, I'm curious on, on your process, and maybe there's something that we can learn from that. Yeah. So in general, if I want to learn about something related to biology or medicine, I try to read peer-reviewed journal articles. So peer review means that before these articles are published, other scientists, you know, in the in the field who who work on similar subjects will read these articles and critique them to make sure that everything that's written in them seems reasonable and true. So just a caveat, peer review is not a perfect process. Certainly articles get published that have problems, you know, they can have errors in their analysis, they can have fraudulent results, they can have misleading claims and scientists you know, like journalists have their own agendas that can bias their work. Um, However, in general, because peer-reviewed articles are based on scientific experiments, I consider them to be the closest thing to fact that, you know, we as humans have access to. So I am very lucky. I have the scientific training to read these articles. You know, I did go to medical school. I did spend years working, you know, doing research in labs. Um, And I, you know, this is important because these articles are not exactly right, light reading. Um, I remember in college trying to read some of these journal articles and and really feeling like I couldn't extract any information about them. So it's, it was definitely a sort of a long learning process for me. Um, It does take a lot of scientific and research knowledge to really make use of the information in these articles. But I definitely prefer reading journal articles um, to reading articles in the popular media. So when I began to research my book on sexually transmitted infections, I did spend time reading articles in the popular media, but ultimately I didn't find them them helpful. And in fact, they made me feel much more anxious um, about the problem I was trying to solve, you know, which was to figure out a way to have safer sex. So first of all, these articles didn't tell me the information I really wanted to know. For example, what is the per sex act transmission rate of different sexually transmitted infections and how much do different interventions like using condoms decrease this transmission rate? I really couldn't find that information anywhere in the popular media. And that was really the information I thought would be most helpful to me. Um, The second reason the popular media um, 
can be unhelpful is that I think these articles that we read can be misleading. So often when I read articles written by non-scientists or non-doctors, they can pre present information in a way that is very distorted, either because the writer doesn't understand the topic or because they want to tell a better, a better story. So a recent example of this was a New Yorker article about how difficult it was to get off psychiatric medications. Um, and if you read this article, you would probably conclude that psychiatric medications are not effective and psychiatrists have no idea what they're doing and just randomly prescribe medications with no consideration of whether they're effective or have side effects. And I believe in general that this is untrue. Um, and if you think about the goal of the person writing the article, um, this person wasn't writing this article thinking, I want to help people have better mental health. This person was probably writing this article thinking, I, I want to tell a good story. I want to shock people. I want to provoke people. Um, and reading this article actually really scared me when I read it. And I'm, you know, I'm in the field. I'm a psychiatry resident. So I think this article did a, a great job of being shocking and horrifying. But I think it also scared a lot of people from ever seeing a psychiatrist. So I think there is some analogy with reporting on the novel coronavirus. Um, I actually, I stay away from, you know, reading popular reporting of the novel coronavirus because I do think it's explicitly designed to be provocative and to be anxiety provoking. And obviously this is a very anxious time. Um, so if I have a question, I look for the scientific answer in PubMed, which is an online search engine maintained by the National Institutes of Health to search for research articles. So I do that rather than try to wade through articles that I feel are explicitly written to scare the hell out of me. Uh, well, this is something I haven't thought to ask you before, but like, you know, it's going to be hard for the rest of us. So is there any, you know, to do that? Um, so is there any, you know, in terms of mainstream things or people, is there anything we, uh, we should, you know, we can look for as more lay people? So, you know, I would, I, I would actually recommend that you give PubMed a try. I mean, Alex, I know that you've sent me some articles. Um, they have, you know, they have links that are speci specifically dedicated to, you know, the novel coronavirus. And I think they're trying to make um, these articles, you know, accessible and among other things free. So I think it might be worth a try, you know, just going online to the search engine. And, you know, if you have a question, um, you know, t type it in there, type in some keywords and, and see what you find. I think, I guess I'm not exactly sure if like, if you, Alex, find them readable, but I, you know, I think it's a decent place to start. Yeah. I also, I mean, my own, one of my own strategies is I like reading or listening to interviews of different people who claim to be experts. And then I, I feel like I have a pretty good intuitive sense of how objective they are. And then I like listening to people coming from different kinds of perspectives. And one thing that I, I note where I, that I like a lot, I've talked about this in a previous episode of the show is just when people are good at expressing degrees of certainty and uncertainty, they get very suspicious when somebody just acts like they're certain about everything. And in particular, and, and also do they explain their differences with other people? Cause I, I just find that I find it to be a giveaway when they, when they, uh, when they don't do that. So, but we have, we have you here. So let's, mm. uh, let's talk a little bit, um, about 
you know, what's, what's known about this in terms of the, uh, and then, but I want to specifically focus not on like, we're going to reveal some, you know, revolutionary new truth about this, but really like understanding what is pretty well known, but in terms of the, the strategy. So we've talked about, okay, it's, it's goal is to survive and make as many copies of itself as possible. So if we're thinking of that goal and then the strategies, where should we start with SARS-CoV-2? Okay. Yeah. So the first strategy is, is grow. Um, so, and when so I say, like grow inside your body, yes, the first strategy is to grow inside our bodies. So what I mean by this is that, um, the novel coronavirus, um, as soon as it enters our bodies, it tries to infect as many cells as possible. Um, so when I am thinking about the novel coronavirus inside our body, the first question I ask, well, what kind of cells does it infect? So as I mentioned before, viruses live inside our own cells. So um, these cells give viruses a nice warm home with everything they need to stay safe and to make more copies of themselves. So without a home or without one of your cells, a virus can't make more copies of itself and it can't be successful. But it needs a way to get inside this home. So um, I like to think of each cell as a home with a locked front door. And to get inside, a virus needs the correct key. The novel coronavirus has a key that fits inside a very specific lock, and that lock is a protein on the surface of cells, which is called the ACE2 receptor. So any cell with ACE2 receptor is unlockable or infectable by the novel coronavirus. Any cell without ACE2 on the outside of it is not infectable by the novel coronavirus. Where do these names come from? Like ACE2? Yeah. So ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme. So that it's just a, an acronym. Um, it has to do, as I'll mention in a minute, it has to do with um, blood pressure regulation, among other things. Um, but yeah, that's where it, that's where it comes Got from. It. So ACE2 is found in a lot of places inside our bodies, which can explain some of the symptoms that the virus causes. So it's found in the cells that line um, your nose and mouth, which can explain why the novel coronavirus causes cold symptoms like runny nose, coughing, sneezing, and one reason why we're so easily transmitting it to each other, um, just because these cells are, you know, pretty close to the environment and can easily come in contact um, with the virus if we, you know, have it on our hands, for example. ACE2 is found in large concentrations in the lungs and in the small intestine, and that can explain why it causes pneumonia and um, gastrointestinal symptoms. I just want to pause on that because I, yeah. I find that very interesting, just that mm-hmm. it's it's more clear. It's like the organism is it's much cl- more clarifying for me to think of this as, okay, this is this little guy and he can only get inside these types of doors. And then there, these types of doors exist in these specific parts of the body. Although unfortunately in this case, in many parts of the body, I, I like having that more uh, causal understanding of how it works than just like, oh, because I even heard before it hits ACE, ACE2, but I didn't know what that is. <laughs> or And it just seems, it just seems arbitrary. It just seems like, oh, well, this is a thing. And then it happens to get involved with the lungs and other parts of our body. So I just, I just want to highlight for me how I find that clarifying. Yeah, I like having that mental image too. And I remember very early on, I one of my co-residents was saying like, oh, some you know, sometimes the novel coronavirus, like it only causes abdominal pain. It doesn't cause pneumonia. And, and you know, that sounds terrifying. Like, you know, why would it cause this completely different? Um, it just sounds like it's extra, mali- it just sounds like it's extra mean. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do feel like it's somewhat um, 
calming to, to try to get this type of understanding. So at least you feel like you, you can picture what's going on and hopefully other people will find that too. So in addition to helping you understand the symptoms and the potential negative consequences of a novel coronavirus infection, um, knowing what types of cells that novel coronavirus infects can also help you understand who is most likely to get infected. Um, so from the beginning of the pandemic, it's been clear that certain health conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and older age seem to make it much more likely that people will get sick and die from the novel coronavirus. And this is actually pretty interesting. So the novel coronavirus infects you through the ACE2 receptor. Um, and as I said before, ACE2 stands for angiotensin converting enzyme 2, and it has a very important role in maintaining blood pressure in your body. It's also a major drug target. So many people take ACE inhibitors for high blood pressure, but um, ACE inhibitors also have been shown to improve outcomes in people with heart failure. You know, heart failure means like your heart doesn't pump as well as it should, and diabetes. Um, so people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart failure actually all have increased um, numbers of ACE2 receptors. And this increased express this increased receptor expression likely means that they're more likely to get infected, um, more likely to get severe disease, and more likely to die. So wait, is that so infected is there's more places for it to enter, and then is it severe diseases? There's more it can spread around more. Yeah, that's that. I mean, I think that's it's probably somewhat oversimplified to say that, but that's how I that's how I think of it. Um, there's more more opportunity for this virus to you know find a hold in your body, more cells for it infect to infect, um, and then yeah it can be more likely that this infection will overwhelm your body. Got it. And I, I also like that. I find it helpful to, in explaining that point about why certain groups are more at risk because it's, it's again portrayed as just almost mystical or mysterious or arbitrary. And so it makes sense. Okay, well, if it goes through this receptor and then some people have more of these, then that's going to be a factor why they're more at risk. Okay, so that's that's useful how it grows. Uh, are there any implications in terms of so that's that's a strategy of how it grows inside our body? Are there any any implications for counter strategies that we can uh, employ? Yeah, so the general counter strategy um, to the virus, the strategy of grow, is to disarm it. Um, somehow stop the virus from growing so much that it kills you. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any magic answer, but I can talk a little bit about your how your immune system, you know, fights back against the virus growing inside your body. Um, so your immune system for now and, you know, until we have a treatment is really what's going to stop the virus. So there are things that might be able to help give your immune system an edge. Um, so it's plausible that being exposed to a smaller amount of the virus initially will give it less time to grow and kill you before your immune system really kicks into gear. So this is one reason that healthcare workers are particularly at risk. Um, since healthcare workers are taking care of very sick patients, they're exposed to much greater quantities of the virus and it puts their immune system at a disadvantage in trying to fight back. Um, there's a question which I, I know you're interested in, Alex, of whether you can make your immune system any stronger. And I think in general, getting more sleep and avoiding stress is probably helpful. Um, I think this is, it's helpful for me to remember, I think not everyone knows this, but stress hormones like 
you know, the hormones that we secrete when we're stressed, like cortisol, you know, one of their main jobs is, is to actively suppress our immune system, because that's one way that we sort of can um, conserve energy um, in a really stressful time. So if you if you think of yourself like being chased by a bear, you know, you'll um, secrete stress hormones that will shut down your immune system. So all all your energy can go to running away from that bear. There have been some observational studies showing that people with very low vitamin D levels have worse outcomes from the novel coronavirus. I do, and so that's, you know, an area that's actively being researched. I do think it makes sense um, to be cautious about these correlations that we observe. Um, so I'm sure you've heard the term, the expression before, correlation is not causation. Um, so what this means is that even if we observe a correlation, we might not be seeing the whole story either because some other unmeasured variables are causing the change in outcome or because doing an intervention can have unanticipated negative consequences. So I think a good example of this comes from the stroke research literature. So in the past, stroke researchers have observed that people who had higher levels of a molecule called homocysteine in their blood were more likely to have a stroke. And this observation appeared to be quite robust. It was observed multiple times in different populations. Um, so they did an interventional study where they gave subjects vitamins to lower their homocysteine levels, um, and they actually found that it didn't it didn't help prevent strokes, which is sort of surprising given that they had observed this correlation, you know, in so many different people. Um, but vitamin D is an area that's actively being researched. I think there are clinical trials going on right now, and it absolutely makes sense as something to investigate more. Alex, I know that you are particularly interested in how diet might affect our health and our immune system. And I'm not an expert on this, but I did want to describe one way that our diet can interact with our immune system, um, which I think is really important, but is also somewhat nuanced. So it's not necessarily as simple as if you eat a lot of carrots, you're going to survive coronavirus. Um, our diet does determine our microbiome um, and our microbiome is basically all the bacteria that live in our gut. So the composition of this microbiome seems to have important effects on our health and, and on our susceptibility to different diseases. So it can be so important that people with um, this really horrible um, recurrent infection of their GI tract called C. difficile, um, some people who have these infections, they get them over and over again and they can actually die. Um, these people can actually be cured by getting a fecal transplant, which basically gives them a new microbiome in their gut. Um, and what I think is happening there is that the, the, the bacteria in their gut can sort of actively crowd out this new infection. Um, and so if you have an unhealthy micro, microbiome, you might be more susceptible to this infection. And if you have a quote-unquote healthy microbiome, you could be more resistant to it. So that's just one example of how your diet, you know, could affect your susceptibility to different diseases. Let me, let me jump in for yeah. one second. Cause I think this is a, I just want to stress something that, that I think is an implication of what, what you're saying or, so I think it's, it's really valuable when that you're giving just these, these different parts of the equation, even I, I like that you're stressing that, there's a lot that there's uncertainty about and that you certainly have uncertainty about. But if you just think about, okay, well, it's the immune system is 
your key tool of disarming apps and other kinds of interventions. And then uh, the dose of it entering your immune system can be a significant variable. And then also there are things you can, there are things that affect your own immune system. I think just having that as a, as a, as a model of how these things work is very useful for the average person to have and would be even very useful for the media to have. Because one thing I've noticed is that there's almost no discussion of dosage. So it's just acted like, I mean, people acknowledge the thing about healthcare workers, but there's no real thinking about, hey, why might that be, particularly if they're healthy? It's just actually used to just scare people and say, well, like anyone, you know, anyone can get in. So we can't even know. So you, you all should be... Uh, equally terrified, but there's no discussion of, of uh, dose, which if there was, would I think actually encourage a lot of the different kinds of protective uh, measures. We'll talk later about mechanisms of transmission, but the more you understand, oh, I can reduce the dose of it, then you might be encouraged to take certain kinds of protective measures where if you think, oh, well, I'm going to get it anyway, and that's your whole understanding of it, then you could really be hurting yourself and actually hurting others by not understanding that point about dose. And then about immunity, um, you know, neither of us is an expert on all the elements of immunity, but you just think about there's there was almost there's a little bit more now, but there's almost no discussion of things like why it's important to reduce stress, why it's important not to be panicked, why it's valuable to be outside, why it's probably valuable to get sunlight, why you should watch what you eat. I think there's a very strong default response of just hunker in my home, watch Netflix all the time, watch the news about this, order unhealthy takeout and wait for things to pass. And I think that that wouldn't be possible if people had this organism-based understanding that something about that would seem off to them. Um, yeah. So just two quick um, points in response to what you said. I mean, one, your point about dose. So, you know, I'm not cer certainly, Alex, you're, you're my brother and I don't want you to get sick. So I'm not encouraging you to go, you know, expose yourself to, to any dose of coronavirus. But I do want to say in general, like, you know, I work in a hospital and, you know, one of the main um, infection control strategies we have is to wash our hands. And, you know, I think that's been proven over, you know, time to, to be very effective in helping prevent spread of infections. But we don't we don't say like, oh, I'm washing my hands and I'm making them sterile. We, we say when we wash our hands, we're, we're just decreasing the amount of bacteria on them. So I, I think, I think the idea of dose is important because yeah, really like there's bacteria everywhere. Um, so, I mean, I think that for me really changed the way that I think about germs, um, because I think if you realize that there's germs everywhere, like that's pretty terrifying. Um, but now the way I think about it is, well, I want to, you know, wash my hands and decrease the amount of bacteria or viruses on them. Um, and my immune system is, is basically going to do the rest. Um, the other point about the news. Yeah. I think we both agree that you know, news, especially right now can be very, very stressful. And yeah, I, I really would caution people against sort of, I don't know, unless like just sort of fueling their anxiety if, if they don't have to. Um, and I've personally found it helpful during this time to, to really minimize my exposure to the news because it, it is such a scary time. And I think exposing myself to, to news, um, you know, really did make me feel very stressed out. Okay. So, um, just getting back to, um, 
you know, what the immune system is, is doing for us in terms of helping um, stop the virus from growing. So in addition to the work that our immune system does, um, which, you know, I would say is generally out of our control, there are antiviral medications being tested for their efficacy against the novel coronavirus. And scientists are also working to develop a vaccine. Um, and as I mentioned before, that would leave us with antibodies that would be capable of destroying the virus as soon as it entered our body. And that would um, prevent us from getting infected or getting sick. Um, most of the treatments that we have right now are supportive, which means that they work to keep someone alive long enough so their immune system can beat the infection. So this is, you know, when we talk about people being in the hospital, like what are what are we doing for them in the hospital? We're um, putting them on ventilators um, if they can't breathe. Um, so basically we can keep them alive long enough for their immune system to sort of beat beat the infection. Yeah, so I like that, and it's I think it's some it encourages, particularly over the long term, you know, taking in a sense responsibility for one's immune system and not thinking of it as okay, whatever I get, the doctor's going to cure it in a mystical sense. But particularly with something like this, their doctor is aiding you, but it's aiding your immune system. So there's a lot that you can uh, that you can do. And so we have to be, we should be very aware of anything we're doing that undercuts our immune system, including the, I believe unhealthy encouraged behaviors that I, I mentioned before. Okay. So let's, uh, talk about the next, how about we do hide next in terms yeah. of the next strategy. So hide is the, the next strategy that the novel coronavirus uses. Um, I already talked about, you know, the first strategy is grow, um, this, and the second strategy that any infection uses to be successful is hide. Um, so this can mean hiding from your immune system. It can also mean hiding from you and from the people around you, namely by not causing any symptoms. Um, so this is an important strategy to think about because hiding is one thing that the novel coronavirus is doing extremely well. So in one study released by the CDC in China, 80% of confirmed cases had mild symptoms, um, and an unknown percentage of cases caused no symptoms at all. So by causing asymptomatic infections, the novel coronavirus hides both from people who are already infected and from people who are not yet infected. Um, so if you are infected with the novel coronavirus and have absolutely no symptoms, then you can infect other people and have no idea that you're doing so. And because you don't know that you have it and other people won't know either, they will continue to interact with you instead of avoiding you. So I want to highlight how important um, the novel coronavirus's ability to hide is in determining how many people it is able to infect and ultimately kill. Um, and to do this, I want to compare um, the virus that causes COVID-19 um, with the two other coronaviruses known to cause severe illness in humans. So these two viruses are called SARS, which is the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome virus, and MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. So SARS was the original SARS coronavirus, um, and there was an outbreak in the early 2000s. So the original SARS coronavirus um, was thought to have a 10% death rate, and it infected 8,000 people worldwide. Um, and there was a MERS outbreak in 2012 to 2013, and it infected 2,500 people and had a 35% mortality rate. Um, so as of yesterday, 
the novel coronavirus had infected 4 million people and killed 280,000 people worldwide, despite having a much lower mortality rate. Um, well, I mean, that's diagnosed infection, so it's probably a lot more. Yes, correct. Um, yeah, I think we still don't know how many asymptomatic infections there are. So one really important reason why the novel coronavirus has infected and killed so many more people is that it has this ability to hide from us while still being transmissible. So the SARS coronavirus has both asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission, meaning that people can transmit the virus even when they have no symptoms or before they start showing symptoms, if they eventually do. Um, so there are likely many, many examples of this. Um, but one of the studies I read was a study of a family of five people in, in Yang, China, um, who were infected when a completely asymptomatic relative came to visit them after um, after this relative visited infected patients, sorry, visited infected patients in a hospital in Wuhan. So basically this person visited infected patients in a hospital, traveled to Anyang, and while being asymptomatic, infected five family members. So by contrast, SARS and MERS, the other two coronaviruses, only became transmissible after people started showing symptoms. So it was much easier to isolate them and the people they had come into contact with while they were infectious. So this asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is a major reason why the novel coronavirus has been so difficult to contain. All right. So that's that's strategy. So what's the counter strategy to hide? I mean, I have to imagine it's testing, which we hear a lot about. Yeah, exactly right. So the counter strategy is, I call it detect, but it, that means testing. So because the novel coronavirus is so good at hiding, the only way to really know if people um, have it is to test them. So there are two important kinds of tests to know about. So if you test people for the virus, you may be able to isolate them and prevent them from infecting others. I think this, you know, there are reasons why this may not have been totally successful, um, but in general, that's the idea. So tests for infectious diseases can use either direct or indirect methods. So the main tests we've been hearing about so far are direct tests, which means that they look for actual pieces of the virus in your body. So the test looks for pieces of um, viral DNA in your nose, and it is only likely to detect active infection, which means that if you have the disease and then recover, you will likely test negative. So one point I want to make about testing is that it is not perfect. So what I've heard about the tests being used in hospitals right now is that they have a 70% sensitivity, which means that assuming you are infected, there is only a 70% chance that you will test positive. So many hospitalized patients are being tested multiple times if they test negative initially. So as an example, if I had symptoms and I tested negative, there would still be a decent chance that I was actually infected with the novel coronavirus. I think this is just something that people who aren't in medicine don't hear about or realize that basically any test you take is not going to give you a perfect answer. There's there's really, you know, even if you are negative, there's still this possibility that you could be infected. The second kind of test to know about is an I call it an indirect test, and these are antibody tests. So as I said before, your immune system produces antibodies in response to an infection. Um, and in general, it takes your body a while to 
um, produce these antibodies. And in general, um, antibody tests often take to up to a month to turn positive, but they can tell you if someone has had an infection in the past. Now that antibody tests are coming on the market, it should be possible to identify people who've previously been infected. And that I think could also be helpful in controlling the virus. Yeah, I think it's important that all these these different kinds of tests, you know, they have processes and those processes have limitations. And I, you definitely don't hear, particularly with the with the antibody tests, you've heard more about the uncertainties of them, particularly the earlier ones. But yeah, with the direct tests, it's just, I think people think of it like, I don't know, just there's a, you like Google a question to your body and the body just says yes, versus you need some specific mechanism and that mechanism might not be the same that, that, you know, that what you're testing for, you know, the process might not, is not going to be a hundred percent. Although I, I mean, would you expect it'll get significantly better over time than say 70%? Um, honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, one reason that sensitivity can be low is not necessarily the fault of the test per se. It's that, um, basically it can take a while to get a sort of enough copies of the, mm. of the, you know, DNA or RNA, you know, to, to basically like your people, I think people were testing like in the nose, but I think maybe we'll move to saliva, but basically you need enough copies to, um, to detect. And so it's not necessarily the fault of the test, but it, that sort of happens at a certain, um, you know, time course. Um, and so you may just be testing people before they're really detectable. Um, so I think one example I like to use when talking about sensitivity is like a pregnancy test. So, you know, if you're pregnant, like you're still pregnant, but it takes a while for the level of, you know, beta HCG, which is what we think of the pregnancy test hormone to, to get high enough to either show up in your blood or in your urine. Um, so it's not, so I think it's something similar happening um, with the novel coronavirus. Just you need to get, you need to get to a point where there's enough genetic material to detect. Gotcha. All right. So we have, we have grow, we have hide. And so I guess that means the last one is seek. Yeah. So the third strategy that the novel coronavirus uses to make more copies of itself is to seek out new hosts to infect. So finding a new host uh, means that there are many new cells to infect uh, with each cell providing a nice new home for the virus and giving it much more opportunity to make more copies of itself. So finding a new host is a great strategy for the virus. Um, So understanding what cells in our bodies that the novel coronavirus infects can also tell us some really important things about how it is transmitted. So I mentioned earlier that the novel coronavirus uses ACE2 to infect cells. um, And I also told you that ACE2 can be found in the lining of the nose and mouth, which explains why it can cause cold cold symptoms. So then in the nose and mouth are quite accessible to the virus, and that might be one reason why it's so easily transmissible. ACE2 is also found in the lungs, um, so the novel coronavirus um, likely travels from the nose and mouth um, to the lungs in cases where it causes more serious infections. Um, There's also ongoing discussion about aerosol transmission, which uh, theoretically can, I guess in aerosol transmission, you would have particles that are floating around and you could 
theoretically inhale them directly into your lungs. And that may be another way that um, the novel coronavirus seeks out new hosts. So it needs, I mean, it needs, I think one just take away if it's okay. So like, just is important. There's some physical means of transmission. It's not magical. And so what we want from researchers is to give us a more and more precise account of that, or at least the options and, and how it works. And I think that can help knowing there has to be some physical pathway of transmission helps demysticize it and also hopefully make people less fearful about these kinds of things. Yeah, it's not magical. And you also you also need, you know, the virus to get on infectable cells. So like, you know, so if you get coronavirus on your arm, you know, like you're not you're not going to be infected because your, you know, your skin is providing a barrier. Um, so ACE2 is also found in the small intestine and it can, um, the novel coronavirus can cause diarrhea. So this is another potential route of transmission, which we call the fecal oral route, which basically means that you poop something out that eventually someone else eats. And that's how the disease is transmitted. Um, although this is a theoretical route, I don't know that there's been transmission confirmed using this route. So, yeah, I mentioned earlier that people with pre-existing conditions like diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension were more, more likely to die from the disease. Um, and it, I think it also makes sense that they're more likely to be infected in the first place because of their increased number of ACE2 receptors. So I think one of the many reasons why this pandemic has been so difficult is that we all feel so vulnerable to getting sick and even from dying from this virus. And I think, you know, we're, Alex, you and I are in our 30s and we're healthy and we'd like to think that we're not vulnerable, but there are certainly cases of young, healthy people getting very sick and even dying. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's true. And it's important to understand the mechanisms of that, but I mean, that I think everything shows the probability of that is way, way lower than, you know, obese uh, person who's 85. Yeah. So I, I don't think we all need to be equally terrified. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Okay. So, and now that we've talked about seek, um, I think we'll talk about the final counter strategy, which is prevention, which is trying to prevent the virus from entering your body in the first place. Yeah. So just going back to what I was saying about us being healthy and, you know, hoping that we aren't vulnerable. Um, there are many factors that, you know, protect us from the virus. So young age, lack of health problems, hopefully lower ACE2 expression, hopefully a strong immune system. You know, I would say these are largely outside of our control, but they all are, you know, they're all sort of working for us and helping us help helping keep us safe or from suffering major harm if we do get infected. And then on top of that, we have the strategy of prevention. And I think, you know, I think it does make sense the more risk factors you have, like the more careful you you really need to be. Um, so prevention means um, trying to limit or eliminate the chance that you will be exposed to the virus. Um, and I would say it's definitely worth trying to avoid getting infected, especially if you're in a higher risk category and, you know, I think everyone knows there are a lot of recommendations of, you know, what to do. So including hand washing, wiping down surfaces, wearing masks, social distancing. Um, I think at this point, unfortunately, we don't really know how much these measures help. Although, you know, I do think hand washing is, is always a good idea. So, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't have any like slam dunk, you know, prevention strategies that you haven't heard of. 
Um, but I think hopefully I've given people a helpful way to, to think about this disease and, um, you know, what sort of intrinsic protection that we do have. What, just one, one point to make that I find helpful mm-hmm. about having this overall strategic model is that if we think about, particularly with there's disarm and then there's prevent, like those, like I'm much more, like I'm, I'm more likely to take prevention strategies that are not at the expense of disarm. Mm-hmm. So, and so versus, so I, you know, I think in those terms. And so even like earlier on, I'd think of, okay, well I could, um, you know, certainly in a lot of my activities, it was very easy to socially distance myself and that was good. So I would go outdoors and I would socially distance myself, but I would not like sit in the house all day so that I could maximally socially distance myself from everyone by like a hundred feet because I mm-hmm. felt like this is going to, and, and particularly if I think of, oh, this is going to be 18 months until there's a vaccine. I just think I do not want to, even just with the virus, letting aside the, leaving aside the rest of my life, I don't want to make it so that it's harder and harder for my body to disarm this thing by making me inactive and all, all these other things. So that's just, that's just one thing I find helpful about this perspective is just not think of these in isolation and to think of as much as possible, how do I harmoniously improve these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm certainly a big fan of exercise and I, I've found, I've certainly been exercising throughout this and I, I definitely am not interested in, in stopping. Um, so I would agree with that. All right. So we have the, um, so we've gone through, well, I, I was going to give a summary, but I might as well uh, let you give the summary. So what, like, what, what do you think at a high level we should take away from this? And then I might have a few comments. Okay. So just Briefly, you know, like all viruses, the coronavirus is a package of genetic material or instructions. Um, It doesn't have any easy targets like a cell wall that, you know, we can use to fight against it. Um, And this puts our immune system and any medications we might use to try to fight it at a disadvantage. Um, The novel coronavirus, like all living things, as I've said, is just trying to make as many copies of itself as possible. And in order to do this, it's using the strategies of grow, hide, and seek. Um, It grows inside of our bodies by infecting as many cells as possible that have the ACE2 receptors. It hides from us by not causing symptoms so that we can unknowingly transmit it to each other. And it seeks by traveling in secretions from our nose and mouth and getting into the nose and mouth of other people and then traveling to their lungs. It's also um, possible that it's being aerosolized, for example, during speech and then being inhaled directly into the lungs in some cases. Um, Awesome. Well, I just want to stress again why I'm really glad I got you on today and know why I I brought you in in particular on this. And it's, it's, I've stressed this a couple of times, but I think the most important takeaway is that we want an organism-based understanding of this and other things that can help us think a lot more clearly about it, uh, make sense of a lot of different kinds of claims. And I really like the idea of it has this goal of surviving and making copies of itself. And then it has these specific mechanisms of growing that we can try to counter through disarming and that it has mechanisms of hiding that we can counter through seeking and then it has these mechanisms of um what's the what's the last one sorry can we can counter the hiding by detection oh um, oh there you go and so, then the good. seeking you passed the test correct <laughs> then the seeking with prevention with prevention yes thank uh thank you so i'm, I'm not as good a student as i as i thought but 
yeah, and I just think that that's a that's a, a helpful thing, and I've tried to stress at different points how this kind of mental model of how infections and viruses work is is useful for thinking about this and useful for other things, and I think it's useful for us as consumers, and I think in particular the people who are explaining this to others would would uh, benefit from uh, from something like this, and I think it'll be really interesting. I'm going to use this as a framework for just continuing to study where the research goes. I mean, people who know me talking about, like, I am very, like, I tend to be, have strong in, like, my feel of it, which is just my feel, but, like, I tend to feel like dose is a big issue that's being understated. Immunity, immune system is, like, there's a lot more leverage over that than people think. And I, at the moment, suspect that aerosolized uh, transmission is a much bigger deal than we're talking about, but I don't, I can't definitively say all of those those things but i it, i do find it very helpful to have this framework where i can then follow the research so catherine uh thanks a lot for being on the show are there any, any final messages you want to give to the audience um i don't think so um alex it's always uh fun to talk to you and thanks thanks for having me on all right thanks again to catherine epstein so just to uh wrap up the show hope you enjoyed that show uh, departure from the usual show, but I think hopefully this one of the things I talked about very early on in this show is how I'm very interested in better ways of understanding and explaining things. And I, I've, uh, since I've been working with Catherine on her project, I've been, become really interested in how do we understand and explain particularly things in the realm of biology, because they're so important and we talk about them so much in abstract terms, but I think with so little understanding of how they actually work. Okay, hope you enjoyed the Sunday episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. To join the discussion on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash human flourishing project. To get weekly updates, go to human flourishing project.com. And if you like the show, the uh, best way you can pay for it is by spreading it to others. So share this episode or some other episode with somebody else. Uh, the more you do that, the more listeners we will get, the bigger community we will get. So thanks for everything. Thanks again to our guest. I'll be back probably next week, maybe the week after. Uh, in either case, until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project. <laughs>